Hello, and welcome to the Grand Stories Profiles in Aging podcast. My name is Dr. Robert Cosby of the Howard University School of Social Work Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. I will be your host as we talk about aging and equity with social justice leaders and community members. Look forward to your being with us. Well, thank you for being willing to talk to me. This is an interview with Dr. Leyland Hall, and we are discussing issues of social justice, the background and mental health, and a number of his experiences over his lifetime. So we'll get going in just a second. And uh, thank you all for, for participating and tuning into this episode of Grand Stories. Welcome, Dr. Leland Hall. Uh, thank you, and welcome for the privilege of being here with you and uh, dealing with grand stories. And I am grand, so and I don't mean that in reference to positive. I mean in reference to age. Okay. So I've been there. As an elder statesman, you've uh, seen a lot of a lot of things over your lifetime. I can imagine. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your your upbringing and with some of some meaningful experiences you might have had that helped to shape you? Well, the thing is, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And I happened to be born during the Depression. So that was uh, a situation where, in fact, is that when Black people were moving from the North going, I mean, from the South going North for opportunities for working and also getting away from those farms. So I'm a Northern boy with Southern parentage as a whole. And in the process, I lived in the inner city of Cleveland. In fact, I lived in 11 different places. But in the process, I lived in one place for nine years. And while we were there, in reference to me and my schooling, that's where it started. And my parents, in fact, had raised me. In fact, they were my foster parents and later my adoptive parents because I was, uh, we say, given away when I was about six weeks old, three months uh, from a young lady who was ready to raise a child. But in the process of that, I remember very vividly when, in fact, World War II started in regards to back that means I moved from being a kid that was born during the Depression, but was raised in the early parts of his life during World War II. I remember when it started, I remember when it was over. Thing during that time is that we dealt pretty well, family. But we kind of moved around, as I've indicated, 11 different times. Went to four elementary schools, one junior high, and two high schools in the city. So my orientation to the city in reference to what was going on was very vivid and very involved. And even though we were poor most of the time, is that we weren't dirt poor. And most of the folks around us were in the same kind of situation but we strive to move and to do better. That was one of the things. 
But in regards to being able to do a projection in reference to what one might want to be when he grows up and go to school, or in fact, get a job, or as my father would say, get a trade, because schooling was not necessarily the way out. Is that in fact, is that my focus for some reason became schooling. And as I indicated, they had third and fourth grade education. So after about uh, the fifth grade, and they could be no help to me in regards to me pursuing whatever profession that I might want it to be. But thank goodness I had some athletic skills and in the process is that and I was a late bloomer there. I didn't start playing basketball and football until I was 16 in my sophomore year in high school. But I got pretty proficient at it and I ended up going to college and didn't want to go to college. Right? But my cousin said, I better go to college. Right? He's going to punch me out. So in the process, I went to college. I didn't have much clothes and he gave me some help with that. But I graduated from high school on the 28th of January, 1955. And February 5th, I was at Toledo University. I had a whole week to decide that in fact, that I had to go or wanted to go to college. But then it was, uh, I got, a scholarship in basketball in regards to going there, but I broke my wrist that summer, my hand. And when I went to register, I went to the athletic director's office and he in fact saw I had a cast on my hand and by the time I went to register, start my second semester of the school, they had canceled my scholarship. So I was out. And in the process, what was left for me to do would be possibly go to the military. And I had my closest friend had his hit difficulties at Ohio State. And Raymond was a little better. He was he was more of a middle class kid. He had it little things. Uh, they lived in their house. They owned a house. And for many a year, I shared a bedroom with my mother and father when I. So that's when we were dealing with rooming houses of a sort or living with other families. But that was positive in itself though, because then in fact, I learned how to deal with people. But in the process is that I went back to Cleveland and said, well, maybe we'll go to service. Raymond was saying, yes, we can. However, is that in fact, is that let's go and look at John Carroll. Jack Carroll University was somewhere in the Heights, we would call University Heights, Cleveland Heights, Parma Heights and Cleveland. So what was the Heights that there was out there? But it was ways to get out there, had to catch buses. And we had no idea what the population of the school looked like. So Raymond and I go and we find out there's only three black students in day school. No other students that I knew that were black were at the school. And we walked in and we were looking at the bulletin board in regards to the presentations, what they're gonna do uh, during the semester in regards to what classes people are at the And this little guy walks out that has his collar turned around and he asks us, can I help you boys? And we said simultaneously, yeah, we're thinking about going here. Yeah, we're thinking about going here. 
thinking about going here the first night at night school, the second day at day school, school was already going, and we were going to go there. He said, come into my office. And we went in his office for about 40 minutes. He came out, took us to the registrar and said, register these boys. They'll start class tonight. Sent them to the counseling center so they can get a job. Paid a tuition, $9 a credit hour. Lots of money. So in the process, we ended up going to John Carroll, getting in John Carroll with not a clue of what the school was about as a whole, except it was a college, quote unquote. And it turned out to be one of the best moves that ever was made in my life with that little guy, Father Richard Dieters, letting me and Raymond in the school. But that's when my struggle started of learning. And that's when my interest became more in what happens to people, Black people particularly, but people generally in regards to not getting benefits necessary to sustain their life. But this was early on. <clears throat> it wasn't like so much today. Today is, is more emphatic, I think. Then it was tough, but you took a route and you could make it. I mean, you were making 25 cents an hour in some jobs when you were a kid, and the minimum wage at that time was 75 cents. So in the process is that some people were making it, but that's what you use and that's what you hustle. So I developed an interest in regards to dealing with people, and I was fortunate enough to get a job where I worked 40 hours at Cleveland Psychiatric Institute and Hospital with mentally ill patients where we used to give 100 shock treatments a day, which people don't know about, but that got my attention in regards to what in fact was going on in medicine and people that had problems and problems to their mental illness. But that was the beginning of me beginning to understand when in fact some of the needs were of people who in fact had mental disabilities. But I had no idea that I would end up would be basically a basis of my profession after I'd gone to school. And in the process is that the whole thing in regards to public assistance as they called it back in the day was helpful. My, my employment at the psych hospital, salary wasn't that great. My dad and moms was on welfare. They were on welfare. And in the process, neither one of them got $100 a month from, uh, from public. But it was helpful in regards to getting over. And my salary that I had was just over $200 full time and I was working. So I had full-time work, full-time student, full-time athlete during the time. And in the process, I had another thing that turned me around to look at what it was, what it was worth to really look at and function and focus on people who really needed help that suffered various kinds of emotional problems. My mother died between my first and second semester. And I was destructive. 
in college. And in the process of that, I became ineligible to play basketball because my grades were forced to use in a D. In a course that I'd had a B in, I got a D and it's questionable. But in the process of that, once I got that, I couldn't play ball, which kept me in school. I didn't have my mother to be looking at guys and making a better life for her. Again, looking at school. So in the process, I took 15 credit hours and dropped six nine, and was asked to leave. And I left school without a year. At that time, uh, during the civil rights struggle uh, at that point. Well, civil rights was just beginning uh, 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 as a whole. I used to sit on the porch with my father-in-law before I got married to my, uh, to, uh, uh, my wife. And he used to say is that if I was a younger man, I'd be in this and I'd be doing so-and-so because the fact is that we've been treated so badly. But at the time, it was when Martin Luther King was just getting started. It was at the time when, in fact, is that it was becoming an awareness that, in fact, that that inequity in regards to how people were being treated in this country, who, in fact, were minorities, particularly Black, was not, in fact, uh, any kind of a life anybody would live if they, in fact, were in the situation of wanting to get ahead of submission. That's one of the things that kept us going. That's one of the things that when we were accepted to John Carroll with a completely white population, all male, and there's two black guys that wanted to go there. That was exceptional in Russell dealing with it. But they started doing the, the, uh, the, the whole scene in reference to uh, uh, boycotting buses in the South. Not so much in Cleveland, but what was going on. And it was peripheral with respect to that kind of rights. That continued at that point. And that was the lightweight part of it, which wasn't lightweight because they were uh, integrating uh, the drugstores and the lunch bar, uh, the lunch uh, counters in the South. A lot of us gave a lot of credit to people that were doing the same. Go on, I, I was asking a question just to make sure I understood the time frame. This was during uh, the time after the death of Emmett Till, correct? That's right, that's right. The thing is, is that this has been during the, uh, during the late 60s, uh, late 50s, early 60s. That was during a transition. And that when Emmett Till was killed was another thing, it was a big shock but not anything that wasn't expected. We, in fact, expected those things to happen in the South. Tell me why you thought that. Because it was happening. My dad, in fact, would be the one that would be telling me about what would happen even with him. He, in fact, is that he's from Alabama. And in Alabama, the area from whence he came, they used to have their own colored or N-word baseball players in the community and the white folks would bet on the teams. And my dad was a baseball pitcher. 
and he won a game he was supposed to lose. And after the game, he was sitting on the porch with his cousins, kind of sitting on the stairs, and one of them was sitting above him. And a shot was fired, and she was shot in the heart and killed her. It went right above his head. He, in fact, was accused of shooting her. And he, in fact, was basically tortured trying to get a confession out of him, which never came, but he was sent to prison as a whole. This is a, this is a guy that's in his, his, his late teens that the deal went down. But he got out and he uh, started doing what he did. So, and started his family, my brother and sister. But that was his experience. And then there were always other experiences is what people have. You don't stop the car when you're driving from north to south or south to north. You can't go to the bathroom. You can't buy food. So the shoebox, if you were going to catch a bus or a train, was the lunchbox. Or it was, in fact, your, uh, your container where, in fact, is that you had your chicken. Always going to have the chicken. Or you might have a sandwich with it, but it was going to how far you had to go. It's going to have the chicken in regards to where you're going. But that was it. And then when Teal's thing happened, and his mother took the posture that she did in saying that, in fact, that she wanted his coffin open so people could see what they did to her son, was super heroic in reference to having that kind of heart and sharing that with with not only the black community, but with the world in regards to man, that's humanity to man at that point. But that was it before I got us. But still, keep in mind, I'm going to a white school, college, Catholic, and listening what's going on. I finished there and I did get out. After I was asked to leave, I came back little man that took me in the first time, took me back. Took me a year and a summer to finish. And when I came out of there, I was fortunate enough to get a job working in child welfare, 1961. And this is when, in fact, is that they even had problems with men supervising young teenage girls who, in fact, were in the agency. And also, Black uh, men supervising white kids. So my my political awareness in regards to what the realities were in the area of social welfare, in the area of, of, of social being, in the area of, of criminality, began to really take a spurt of growth at that point in time because of the fact that uh, I was able to now begin to read outside of what was needed in school and to, in fact, follow what was going on in other areas, along with the civil rights needs that Black folks were working on. What and then I, were, uh, human rights issues uh, did you embrace as most important back then? One of the rights in this country to be is that you have a right to have a healthy life, healthy life. 
you have one that a life that in fact is free of any mental pressures that in fact it may cause you to become ill. You have situations where in fact is that you should have, should be able to have work, a job, where in fact is that you can take care of your own and pay taxes to the system, where in fact folks that are unable to do that can benefit from it until they can get on their feet. Now, back in the 60s, 50s, 50s and 60s, when my father was on welfare, they attempted to do work. Welfare to work was one of the things that they dealt with. It came back again in the 1960s with the, the uh, development and Office of Economic Opportunities during the poverty program. That's when the focus became one that, in fact, dealt with early childhood development, Head Start, dealt with uh, youth development, job creation and development, uh, dealt with uh, training for mothers who in fact were single, with training in regards to employment, healthcare for the poor, healthcare for those who couldn't afford it, Medicaid came along, which in fact brought along with it the ability people would be able to take care of their health needs without worrying about being destitute and being uh, put in a position that you could say they just kind of fade away. So that Not was the end of the, the uh, or I should say during the Johnson administration, 65 and, and after, correct? Mm -hmm. The thing is, Lyndon Johnson incidentally spoke at my graduation when I graduated. When you graduated from? School of Social Work. He spoke at, he spoke at our graduation. At Howard University? Yes. Wow, that's great. Yeah, that's class of 1965. And uh, that was where he first announced his uh, war on poverty, as I, as I recall. Yes, that's, that's what he did. But the thing is, is that I, everybody wanted, wants to still deal with, with Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was an okay guy as a whole, but he was cautious, very cautious. And the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, was one that in fact had put, put Martin Luther King on a terrorist list in regards to in fact keeping an eye on him, tapping his phones, the whole bit. And Bobby is the one that, in fact, was kind of the enforcer that they would, in fact, see that it was an act kept on these Black folks. Because he what was happened, the time the Attorney General. Yes, 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 yes. But the issue is, is that what happened that people don't know is that when LBJ was kind of a protege to Roosevelt as a whole, and when he graduated from college and went back to, to Texas, he taught school with the Mexicans. Folks don't know that. He was, he, I mean, he was a bigot without question to an extent. Yeah. The issue is, is that what he did in reference to domestic programs, if it wasn't for the Vietnam War, he would have gone down as one of the best presidents we had. 
He focused on the war on poverty, came up with the bill in reference to voting. He came up with the protection in regards to dealing with folks who in fact had the greatest needs in this country at that point in time to try to elevate them educationally, health-wise, whatever, as a whole. I couldn't stand him because of just that Southern draw. Couldn't see that in fact what he was doing was so positive at that time, even though I was part of implementing those kinds of programs. I worked for the United Planning Organization in DC uh, back in the day when it's, you know, when it's early start, represent what was up. And I was a community organizer in, in, in uh, Southwest DC. Now, one of the things that- from, from Howard with a background in community organization. No, the background was in mental health. Mental health, okay. Psychiatric social work. I went to Patuxent. I don't know if you remember Patuxent. Patuxent's in Maryland. Yes. That's where the um, defective delinquents, as they called them. You could go to jail there with stealing a purse from one day to life. There was an indeterminate uh, 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 sentence that you would get. That was back then. It's not there anymore. But that was one of my places. And the other placement in my second year was in the school system in regards to dealing with uh, psychological and psychiatric evaluations. And, in DC public schools. Yeah. And yeah. so how did that go? What, what were the things that, that you learned in those experiences? The thing at Patuxent was interesting in regards to dealt with the whole penal system that a person could go in there for murder, they could get out in a month, you know, behind a, a, an evaluation. Again, this was a program that in fact they instituted to demonstrate that you didn't have to have a long period or definitely a short period of time being in jail. It's just dealing with the, how can I say it? Dealing with the person's mind who in fact had, had psych needed psychiatric intervention and how long it would take to deal with that before they can be readjusted back into the community. That was one that was kind of awakening me in reference to they were giving them, you can say giving them a chance to do better, but if you look at the longer sentences they could have, it's more it's more penal than 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 it, than it would have been if it would have been straight out. And this was before the whole scene of private private prisons, which in fact becomes a you know an industry in itself now. Yes, a billion dollar oh, industry, correct? Uh, multi billion. Yes. But uh, the school system in reference to dealing with them, I learned to do outreach. In reference to, well, I knew how to do outreach. I was community organizing when I was when I was a kid in reference to Cleveland. I lived all over the city, so if anybody needed to know somebody, I could tell you who and what, and that kind of a bit. But that was another thing in regards to being able to share information in regards to what one may need uh, some assistance to come to a solution in regards to identifying what in fact resources were available to lift people up and out of situations. But I did that 
then I learned from the psychologists that were there. When I came out of there, I went to child, family and child services, work with kids, which was doing social work. But then I slid over into community organization and then went bananas and training. Went in and out of Mississippi, was in Mississippi training people in community organization skills. And what were those uh, those experiences there, uh, Mississippi training people in community organization? Well, it was with the Child Development Group of Mississippi was the name of the, of the organization. It was out of Jackson. And in the process is that what we did is that we principals of community organization and not only saying that, that teaching it, but also going along with people as they were in fact doing it. But during that time, I was scared as you could be. Now, a beautiful state, but in reference to the reputation, that was one of the things I wanted to back off on in reference to dealing. But I enjoyed it in reference to the work, learned a whole lot as well as in regards to imparting. And also we did some stuff in, in um, in voter registration. And in the early childhood development aspects of it, the child development piece of it, is that there were situations where is that they did try to get white and black kids to come together in the uh, in the uh, in the um, daycare centers. And there was one story that went around is that uh, and I can book most likely you read. Uh, the devil wears slippery shoes. And I can't remember her name, but she she uh, she was one of the white women that was down there that was doing training and organizing back in the day. But in the process is that it was a story going around is that they had, they, they were playing house, the kids were doing it. And they ended up putting a black doll and a white doll in bed next to and the white folks pulled out of the center. Hmm. And that was back in 60, about 68. So you've heard that that biblical quote, with all thy getting, get understanding. Um, based on the, those experiences that you had in Mississippi and experiences that you had in Washington and other places, um, what do you want to share uh, that you think others would be very interested in knowing um, in your life experiences? Well, it's not so much in, in reference to my life experiences in reference to them dealing with their life experiences and what they're seeing in regards to what, what's happening today. I'll give you an example. All of what happened went to developing me in reference to what I am and what I became and what I did. I never was a finished product. I was always learning. And learning is, in fact, the, the most important factor. And being able to, in fact, learn, to listen in reference, and also to impart as you grow yourself. Example, this whole pandemic situation You've got groups, and I'm down here in Florida, 
it's a situation where in fact is that my son's a teacher, my daughter-in-law is a teacher. My two grandchildren are all in the same school. My daughter-in-law is now being tried, traced for a second time. My grandchildren have been traced and my son has been traced. I have been. When now, you say traced, what do you mean? Meaning that someone, kids, kids came to school that had, or, or a coworker, that had COVID the virus. I see. Uh -huh. Yeah, they had the virus. And uh, so you were talking about contact tracing. Contact tracing. Got it. Okay. Pulling together the resources or the people who, in fact, represent various resources to put their hands together and say, this looks like my area of specialization and expertise. Okay. This is one I think we should do. You are an uh, expert in mental health. Uh, you spent a number of years in both uh, at the grassroots and at high level positions. Um, you've said that you have enjoyed learning from other people. Um, if Dr. Martin Luther King was in fact a drum major for social justice and thinking about social justice, how would you describe yourself? I'd not be the one that would be in a band playing a drum. <laughs> he's, he's going to be the drum major. I'd be the one in the band playing the drum. The one that, in fact, gives it the backup, give it the support to be in a position to develop, or not develop, but to help with the development of additional resources that to come up, train, or at least practice with the, the other trumpet that might be second trumpet in the band if you want to look at it that way. Basically saying is that we are a part of, uh, it's not a mechanism, but we are a part of, continue to be. We're becoming. People, in fact, need to deal with a continuation of, of learning, but at the same time, a continuation of sharing our experiences for those who, in fact, are learning coming behind us, with us, however it is. So my thing is, is that, in fact, is that I would not necessarily say be the drum major, drum major, drum, drum major. would not be the drum major. My, my thing is, is I've been an administrator, and one of the things that I've always said is that my piece is, is that I'm a generalist and that the experts, the ones that made what we did, it's just that in fact, is that having the ability to pull these minds together and put together a mechanism by which is can be shared and out of it become programs, projects that can be affected. So yeah. it's not so much not so much me, the issue is us. Good point, I understand that. Um, you spoke uh, uh, earlier in some of our discussions about uh, your work at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, DC. Um, can you tell me some about that experience and what <laughs> you, uh, how you learned from that? 
Oh, well, this, this, it's going on what you experience you're talking about as a whole. Like like I was saying when I was, one thing was St. Eve's when I was there initially in 1964 in the summer as a recreational therapist. I had been trained in rec therapy in Cleveland when I was working at the psych hospital there. So that summer I was the baseball and basketball commissioner, as they call me. And St. E's basically is a town. It was a huge, huge facility, and it had all kinds of activities. Very good people that were working there. So it was, in, in fact, uh, one of the premier psychiatric hospitals in the world at the time. Not only that, it was the largest. In the 60s, they had good, they had about four or 5,000. I got I got a, a, a in reference to one one I told you once before is that I worked at 1875. It's where my office was when I was deputy administrator for mental health. And one of uh, the staff members told me that uh, the president was coming to uh, the Hilton uh, to give uh, a, a lecture speech. And in the process is that we were on the eighth floor, so we could look right down at what was going on. You're talking about and the Washington did. Hilton. That's right. Washington Hilton on Connecticut Avenue uh, in 18th Street. So in the process is that I told him, I said, no, I said, I'm not going that window. I said, you can get shot in reference to looking at this kind of thing. And I went downstairs to have my lunch. While I was there, the TV was on and it said the president was just shot. I went upstairs to the atrium. There were holes in the windows. Hinkley had shot four people and they wrapped him up and he took him to St. E's. Trial happened. His family was fairly well off in Colorado, I think he was saying to me. And then the process is that they put him in John Howard Pavilion, which is the criminal psych folks facility. And in the process, he was there. Well, years later, when I was working there, and I was working for Roger Peel, who was, was responsible for the training of psychiatric training, psychiatrists, psychologists, and psychiatric nurses and social workers. Is that in fact? Is that I was working with this this uh, this lady that had one arm, and I asked Roger. I said, "Well, what happened to Leslie's arm?" He says, "Well, she cut it off." She said that uh, she uh, had a situation with her husband, and they had uh, she uh, was going to commit suicide, and she in fact. She, she was going to commit suicide. And she took the, the weapon and put it to her chest and then moved over and it blew her arm off. And that's why she had one arm. So one day I asked her why, in fact, when she was always taking the boxes home that uh, you had, that your uh, typing paper would come in. And I said, what are you doing? What are you doing with the typing paper, paper boxes? As because I'm giving them to my friend for care, care packages. I said, oh, I said, who's your friend? It was Hinckley. So John Hinckley I, was her friend. 
they, that was it. they were engaged as a whole. So in the process is that Leslie was a good person. Other than she had a, that uh, mental breakdown in regards to the suicide. But you said you said she had, she was a social worker. Yeah, she was a social worker, and she and I worked on putting together. We put together a, a wrote a proposal which was funded for a psychiatrist to be trained in uh, in homelessness uh, or funds to in fact that to be available that homelessness and psychiatry in fact would be looked at as a whole. But she's still around. Last I kind of checked it out, but they're not engaged anymore. And he's out of there. But that hospital was a very, very, not only useful resource, it was a necessity of not only dealing with the patients, but in fact, is that the people in the, in the surrounding area, literally, and around the city and, and, and close by, Worked there. They, they were, you had a huge employment population there. Primarily, so primarily Americans, correct? Primarily, primarily. And, they, and, and as the word goes, they, they were kicking butt. They were doing well as a whole. But, you know, that's very, very exclusive land and property, if you know you've been there. Yes, on a number of occasions. Um, I think it's 350 acres of prime real estate, and it goes all the way down to the Anacostia River, that part of Southeast Washington, which um, has had its uh, reputation as being an area of more poor people than not. But there are some very affluent parts of Southeast Washington. In addition, it was largely African-American over a lot of years. Um, it was. Was familiar with, and that's where the majority of your projects were built initially. And they were built by the city with federal money. I understand. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, the guy that the guy that in fact that uh, that was the head of of uh, the project in regards to dealing with with doing the building was Jim Jim Banks. Who you said that you had yeah, met? Yeah, Jim Banks is a, a real real good guy. I had a chance to serve on a couple of boards with him. Um, yeah. So I uh, just had a couple more questions and uh, we, we can uh, sort of wrap things up. But um, I know we don't have much time. So where do you think the priorities uh, should be going forward when we talk about mental health and social work? Well, right now, mental health in regards to dealing with what's happening in this country is, 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 is embarrassing. The emphasis in regards to dealing with people who have, well, example, the nine-year-old kid that 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 uh, that the, the police uh, pepper sprayed. Uh, she had a, a mental situation that should have been intervened. It wouldn't have to go nowhere if someone was there, a psychiatric social worker. Psychiatric nurse, someone with some psychiatric training, to talk to her in regards to going out, going back in the house. Other than these white cops, in fact, pepper spraying this child. It's ridiculous. The guy that, in fact, that was in uh, Rochester, another Rochester beast, that was psychiatric 
had a psychiatric episode, took off his clothes and was in the street and they put a bag over his head. That's another one. You know, the situation in regards to, uh, uh, well, it's been multiple situations that have been going on. And are, do you see these as situations that are happening across the country or primarily in areas where there are disparities, such as among black and brown people? What are you saying? No, I said, I said well, it's interesting. I'd love to say it's happening across the country, which may, it may be, but you know, there's a tendency that in fact is that the information that we receive is that they play down the situations of white patient may, person that might be in that situation. And they play it down and rubs what's happening periodically. It happens with them as well. But the ones that get the most publications are in fact in the black depressed population in regards to what's up. And not only in reference, and then, then you have to deal with the, the whole mindset of your of the police that that going it, they have no commitment to the communities where in fact they work. They live in suburbs and come into those areas and work, not in fact as as protectors, but as overseers to see that in fact folks don't act out, they behave, and in the process when they don't, then it's a problem, and that is an issue. So how would you uh, say, well, it's a recommendation going forward for leadership. What would you say they need to do? Well, let me tell you, there's a little town. I was going to do that here. I, have, I was working with the commissioner in, in Lauderdale, Hill. And I had called him about six months ago. Maybe, maybe it was just after the, the virus. And said, hey. You know, what's, what's going on here in regards to the confrontations that, that the police are having with the community doesn't make sense. Some of these people need to have interventions that is that folks that know about mental health and mental, uh, the, the mental health of their individuals that in fact that they're dealing with to a fair extent. Given the fact is that we have that, why don't we meet with the police department and the city manager and talk about them having a situation where in fact that they would have people trained in mental health, social work, and have police officers that also have been trained in it, in fact, and don't exclude the police. But, they had, but the police are involved in it, but in fact, but they take a secondary position as a whole. Well, I, we didn't do it, but then the next week I read an article, there's a small town and I'm thinking that it's in Illinois, is that it's part of the budget of this town to have just that in regards to people who have mental health training to in fact be at situations where in fact folks feel as though they need psychiatric intervention. So uh, you're saying they would be first responders for psychiatric intervention? Exactly. Okay, and uh, as a person who's seen over the years uh, an awful lot, um, you've made your mark, as we've said, in mental health and in a variety of areas related to helping people um, over a lot of years. Uh, what words of wisdom and experience would you share for um, new social workers or people who 
are just coming to, to think about um, issues of helping people. Well, I, I think that your last two words is in reference to what it is, helping people. Now, in, in reference to dealing with social workers coming into it and helping people do what? And helping what people as a whole? You know, the, the, the whole educational scenario is in fact deal with areas of specialization when you go to school. Uh, in reference to community organization, group work, uh, individual uh, interventions, and so forth. Those kinds of situations I all find to give you a, a broad view of what in fact is out there and what needs to be intervened. My bit is, is that whatever you come out to get into, start out in reference to dealing with it. You don't have to shut down in regards to just getting until you get to the point says, I'm, it's, I'm, I can't do it anymore. Get in a situation where in fact, you gotta feel it, you gotta love it. You gotta know that in fact, is that it's people and in fact that you're helping up, that you are literally pulling them up by the, by, by the nap in their pants, reference to us and helping them. Or in fact, is that you could go on the thing in regards to administration. You know, administrators, in fact, is that run mental health clinics. Uh, they, they are companies now dealing with diversity. Diversity training is another piece. And tied into diversity is, in fact, the whole scene of the psychological posture that people have about things and about each other, where there are the differences. Where are the similarities? You know, where in fact do they hurt? How can you take it away from it? Case in point, I work with uh, Central Union Mission, I told you, and I work with guys who had, who had uh, who not only were homeless, but had HIV. Central Union and that was in, in the, Washington, D.C. Yeah, and that was the early days. And that's when it was scary. You didn't know if it was like this virus now. You don't know if it's going to jump out and get you. But in the process is that what we did, what um, I did with my group, I did what dealing with their experiences that they had and how in fact is that they can in fact intervene with, 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 with helping others. And by the sharing of experiences is that they in fact could get a, a better idea and insight in reference to what may be going on with them, or it could be reciprocal. It could go the other direction. So it's a sharing, a sharing of experiences and an acceptance and its impact that it has on your mental state or your mental state. So the uh, the the combination of inequities along with the uh, the health disparities along with the actual uh, COVID-19 virus and the impact on communities is what you're talking about. Yes. Okay. Um, yes. Very important points. Um, uh, the last point I would like to just try and sort of sum up what we've been talking about in part, but ask you to think a little more, um, knowing that your contributions have been significant, um, what might you say you want to share with the next generation that's important? 
Uh, well, keep at it. That's that's you know, and by keeping at it is that you know don't lose your enthusiasm in regards to what you're into. Get help, and I don't mean we all do that, but in the process, get help in regards to understanding things that, in fact, that are occurring that you may not be able to process. Um, if you if you don't have supervision that in fact has a broad enough mind to in fact be able to work, work with you in developing your acceptance of, of, of what you have to do and and dealing with the situation of how in fact that you have to particularly do how can I in regards to can you deal with what in fact that your feelings are and represent how you can help uh, intervene and bring about positive changes in in an organization or in an individual. In fact, that have problems that are well can be introduced as as mental problems in the long run. But that would be one of the things in reference to, and that in fact would be keeping up with with the situation. Whereas you may not be able to impact it in a, in a, in a, we used to call ourselves change agents when we came out. As a change agent, but you can do it in reference to as a modifying agent, where in fact is that you can do things to the point where in fact is that all sides can be satisfied in regards to what the approaches are being and in order to sustain a level of a standardized level of satisfaction. Well, thank you. That was, uh, I think, a good place to leave things for now. Um, you have been uh, gracious to be able to give me a portion of your time and to share some of your experiences and expertise. Um, we are most grateful in our, our discussion. Um, you've been listening to uh, Grand Stories podcast, uh, Profiles in Aging, and we've been talking with uh, Dr. Leland Hall, his experiences from his upbringing in Cleveland, Ohio, all the way through his time in Washington, D.C., and his work mostly as a retired person in uh, Florida. And so um, thank you again, Dr. Hall, for your participation and for all of your contributions and uh, look forward to staying in touch. All right, that's all good, Dr. Then Thank you for having me, Dr. Bowser. Thank you. This podcast was sponsored by Howard University School of Social Works Multidisciplinary Gerontology Center. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at H-U underscore gerontology, G-E-R-O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y, to stay up to date. The music you hear is performed by the Howard University Jazz Ensemble under the direction of Fred Irby III, Professor of Music at Howard University. I hope you'll join me in two weeks as we explore more social justice and aging issues. Thank you for listening.